together. Ezra chapter 9, starting in verse 6 and going through verse 15. Now, a little context here. We talked about last week how he fell, Ezra fell down, tore his robe, fell on his knees, and stretched out his hands to God. And this is the prayer that he prayed. Verse 6. And I said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the day of our fathers, to this day we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame, as it is this day. But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of kings of the kings of Persia, to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which are filled from it, filled from end to end, and with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our, less than our iniquities deserve and have given us escaped remnant as this, Shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction and so there's no remnant nor any who escape? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. Heavenly Father, continue to speak to us through your written word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There was these three theologians walking down the street one day having a deep theological discussion. And while they were walking down the street, they were discussing prayer. Specifically, positions of prayer. How one must position himself or herself as they pray. The discussion got so intense that they stopped, and they're talking to one another. It just so happened where they stopped, there was a, a pole, a line pole, a telephone pole, if you will, and there was a lineman up there working on the lines. And, of course, being directly above him, he could hear everything that they were saying. So the first theologian made the point that powerful prayer was in the position of the hands. And he said he always folded his hands and put them upward as a form of worship. 
Well, the second theologian disagreed with him and said the only position for real prayer is on your knees. And the third theologian said, no, you're both wrong. The only way to really pray to God, a most powerful prayer, is to fall prostrate, fall down on your face and pray. Now, the lineman would hear all the discussion going on, so he couldn't hold anything back. So he shouted out, hey, I can't help but hear what you're saying. I want to throw my two cents in and tell you that the most powerful prayer that I ever made was I was dangling upside down by my heels from a power pole suspended 45 feet above the ground. That's when I pray the most powerful prayer of my life. It comes more of an issue of the heart, doesn't it? It reminds me of this passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, tells us something about prayer. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted at all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence, O boldly go before the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus has walked a mile in your shoes and mine. He knows what it's like to be hungry, to be tired, to have friends turn on you. Look what it says in that text. Was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. We can go with confidence, or as the King James renders that, boldness. Not arrogance, but boldness. Confident that when we go before the throne of grace, which is God's throne, that he's going to hear us. So we may receive mercy and help in time of need. Would you not agree with me this morning that our country desperately needs help? That our president needs help? Our Congress needs help. Our churches need help. There's one thing about that text I want to point out, the Hebrews text. As as 21st century Americans, we have a hard time wrapping ourselves around the concept of us and we. Look what the text says. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, let us hold fast our confession with our weaknesses one who has been tempted all things as we are. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So much of our American heritage is wrapped up in rugged individualism. And we heard that expression so many times, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Now, That has kind of warped our idea of Christianity. It's made the focus of Christianity of making Jesus your personal Lord and Savior. It means that we are saved. It means that you have a personal one-on-one relationship with Jesus. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. That's the extent of it. Now, all those things are true. But the point I'm making, that's not the extent of it all. As Christians, we understand that Jesus saved us as individuals. But as individuals, we become part of his body, the church. 
We're no longer aliens, strangers, enemies of God. We're now part of Christ's body of the church. We are part of the family of God. So there's not only individual responsibility, but there's also corporate responsibility. And that should be a focus of our prayer life. Not only do we come as individuals with confidence, talking to God about what we need as individual believers, but also as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ coming together, going with confidence before the throne of God so we may find grace and the help of time of need. That's what that return is all about. People crossing denominational lines, coming together as brothers and sisters in Christ, seeking the throne of grace. Years ago, back in the 90s, I attended Stand in the Gap, put on by Promise Keepers. Over a million and a half men met in that mall that day to confess and repent and to stand in the gap for our country. Just as a side note, when I went there, you know, there's people from all over the place. I don't know if you've been to Washington, D.C., but that mall is huge. Tammy and I one time had the great... <laughs> Well, I guess it was my idea. Let's walk from the Washington Monument all the way over to like the Arlington National Cemetery. Now, that's one long walk. <laughs> but I remember that day it was filled with guys from up in the Capitol all the way back past the Washington Monument that day. At one point, I forget who the speaker was. He said, on the count of three, I want you to shout out. Your religious heritage, or what church do you attend, or you're Baptist, or you're a Methodist, whatever it is, shout it out. He went one, two, three, and I heard Baptist, Church of Christ, I heard this, that. But it didn't make much sense. I mean, it's kind of like blue. You couldn't distinguish one over the other is my point. But when he asked us the question, who do you trust as your Lord and Savior, without having counting the three, together in unison, everyone shout it out, Jesus Christ. And then came a holy hush. It's like, oh, did you hear that? And then everybody started cheering. But this corporate prayer that I'm talking about, that's what we see Ezra doing in our passage. And as a spiritual leader of Israel, that was his unique responsibility. And as your pastor, that's my unique responsibility too, to lift you up as a church. God, help me. Minister to these men and women. Help me preach your word in such a way that it will meet them where they are. God, I need your help. And I said this once, I'll say it again. That's why pastoral, pastoral tenure is so important. You know, the average tenure for a Southern Baptist preacher, the last time I checked, was 18 months. That's a year and a half. But the longer I, I stay here and I get to know you, get to know me, that builds relationships. Doesn't it? Get to know each other. And as I prepare the messages, I can ask God, God, you know what's going on. Help me with these individuals, what's going on in their life. Help me speak through me and speak your truth into their lives. Now, this prayer that he was praying could have been prayed by the people as well. And that's another point. Not only is it my responsibility as a pastor, but you, as a layman or woman, need to pray for the church as well. It's your responsibility. Now remember, 
where this remnant has come from. They had traveled a thousand mile journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. And when they got there, they spent about five months setting up and getting prepared to start the work. They had a time of preparation, observation, and motivation. Because of the extensive preparedness where Ezra continued to taught the people's God's word and lived it out in front of them, they were convinced of their sin and their mist. They observed it. They repented of it. And they were motivated to change. And all that leads up to where we're at right now. It leads up to one of the most powerful prayers of corporate confession in the Bible. Look what Ezra does not do. Look in the text. He does not implement a bunch of rules or laws or programs to force the change on the people. That is not his top-down approach to use. He used a real top-down approach. And we will see how God, through this prayer, he stirred the people's hearts to change. God, through his word, by the power of his spirit, is the only one who can change the heart. Should we have laws? Yes. I don't like what I see happening in our country with the statutes and the flags. But my point is being this. Only God, only God can change the human heart. And Ezra was not interested in a temporary man-centered, man-generated reform. But he was interested in the power of the Almighty God working in and through his people to change their hearts. Look at us. We're in rural America. And from the world standards, they look at us and go, what could they possibly do? Look at the disciples. They were uneducated. Fishermen. And the world can look at them and say, what could they possibly do? But they turned the world upside down for Christ. And my point being, if we allow God to work in and through us, we can see change by the power of God as well. And as he prayed this prayer of corporate confession, I want to see some things that we can take back from this and put it into our practice as well. Now, the first one I'm talking about is the prayer of historical reflection. And you see that back in verses 6 and 7. According to Ezra, there's nothing that Israel had done that was any good. Look what he did. He went way back to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, back to the patriarchs of Israel, even before they were a real nation. Now, when he did that, how did he look at them? Look at the text. He did not look at them as the good old days. He didn't look through the past through rose-colored glasses. No, as a matter of fact, it was quite the opposite. To illustrate this a little further, have you ever read a resume? Anybody? Some of you have read my resume that I put in here when, when God was leading this direction. And about a resume, we like to put our best foot forward, don't we? And we're kind of really... uh What's the word I'm looking for? Careful what we include in our resume. You know, we we, want, we make ourselves look good, right? And some of them can get to the point of even bragging. Um, by the side note, I've read some resumes. And uh, anyway, it's amazing how people don't know how to write resumes. But we like to put good stuff in there. I want you to listen to this resume that you've heard of before. It is found in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses, verses 5 through 8. 
Listen to this resume. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Whatever those things were gained to me, those things I have counted but lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. The Greek is very much stronger than that. You put dung in there if you like, so that may gain Christ. And that's Paul's resume. This great resume he had, he's making the point, I don't care about all that. That is nothing compared to knowing who Christ is. What a resume. Everything that he thought was good, he counted it as dung because he did it in his own righteousness. And he understood all his righteousness alone was nothing but filthy rags. See, my point being, Ezra did not build a resume. <laughs> He's not going back. Look what we did here. Look what we did here. Look what happened here. Look what we did here, did he? He went all the way back. He did not build the list of credits with God by talking about all the great things they had done in the past. But he recognized that even in the great things, there was enough sin for God to condemn them. He understood that. It's like the old Puritan prayer. That confesses something we never want to admit. It says this, that even my best prayers are stained with sin. I need to repent of, I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. The understanding that anything good that we accomplish, any success that we have is not because of our own abilities, our own skill, our own knowledge is all because of God. And that's the point that Ezra is making. Any goodness the people had was of God. There was nothing good they could take credit for. The only thing they could take credit for was needed to be confessed before God. So that is what Ezra did. He offered no excuses. He didn't try to justify anything. Did not whitewash anything. His confession was complete in scope and number. We get up on programs, don't we? We have to have to do this. We need to do that. We need to do this. We need to do that. Now, there's a time and place for that thing. We have to realize that anything that good that happens is because of God. Working in and through his people. Their problem was sinful, rebellious, prideful hearts. It wasn't because they were oppressed. It was not because they needed more stuff. It wasn't because they needed more opportunities. It was because of their sin of their rebellious heart. Israel knew their history. He knew it and saw it for what it was. He stripped away any sense of pride, of nostalgia. He stripped away any sense of accomplishment or achievement. He stripped it all away and saw nothing but filthy rags. And he laid those rags at God's feet and he was ashamed. That is the prayer of historical reflection. So I'm telling you as a church, I can say that locally here at Forestburg or church around America. What we need to do first and foremost is recognize and have an honest corporate confession of historical reflection. Saying, look what's happened. 
in our denomination. Look what's happened in churches. It's not because this guy's a great, you know, some people do have the gift of public speaking. There's no doubt about it. A great orator. That does help. But the minute I rely on my own speaking skills, which I don't have very many of, I continue to work on it, it ceases to be preaching and it becomes motivational at best. The minute I turn from the word of God and preach what Tim wants, what makes Tim feel good, and what makes Tim will lie to the, and around other people, that ceases to be preaching. And we need to have an honest reflection of our history. I love the United States of America. I served my country, and I would again. But when you study history, you have to study it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We learn from the past. So many of us are hard-headed like myself. We get in these patterns of just keep doing the same thing, and we get down and, God, what's going on? We don't see the reputation, the the, the repetitiveness of everything. So that's the first step. So you have honest reflection or historical reflection. The second one is the prayer of honest recognition. You see that in verses 8 and 9. How many times do we try to take credit for the work God has done? Perhaps that's one of the problems in our churches today in America. If you look at the whole church growth movement, not all of it, but I would say at least 90% of it is based on some program or model that someone came up with. It's like when you have revival or spiritual awakening happen, let's say in California. Yes, it does happen in California. Power of God is not limited by states. Let's just get that clear. First thing we'll do as leaders is run over there. What did you do? And we look at everything they did. And we run over here and I come into Forestburg and try to plug it in here. It will not work. Because each local body is unique and distinctive. It's a living organism. What works here at Forestburg will not necessarily work in Bowie. And what works in Bowie won't work in Decatur. You have to know your community and the people that you're reaching. There's some principles we can learn, but to implement their programs expecting the same result, that's, that's, that's dumb. The principle is getting before God and letting it all go, not holding anything back. Those principles are learned like that, but so much of our church growth. You ever notice this, too, as a side note? All our church growth is based on people joining the church. We like people to join the church. I do, don't you? Okay. <laughs> I thought maybe a little stronger than that, but okay. We like people joining the church, right? And, and people moving in the area, they've come, they've joined. We've had some people join like that. They've moved out here. We love them here. They're, they're bringing their talents and skills to come and help build the local church and reach its community. There's nothing wrong with that. But so much of what we call church growth is this relocating the sheep. How much church growth is actually people coming to faith for the very first time? And how many people quit coming and they go out the door and we don't know what happens to them? We have to be real careful. Yes, we should watch numbers. I'm not going to get on that game where it's just no, no. Numbers do represent people. We can't get away from that. We have to 
pay attention to the people. Ezra was not interested in seeing what man could do. He was interested in what God had done, past tense, and was doing, present tense, in the lives of the people. Listen to how he could have seen these same events. This is how he could have prayed. Because we've been praying and living right in Babylon, the king decided to let us go. And when he decided to let us go, we gathered up all the people. We fasted and we prayed. We walked all the way from Babylon. We planned the right way when we got there, and now we're ready to get rid of those foreign wives. Look at what we're doing. Does that sound anything like we hear out in society today? We planned this event, and we prayed, and we fasted, and look what we did. We did planned the right way because God blessed it. <laughs> There's a lot of details left out of that, don't you think? You go back in Ezra, you'll see that it's plain in the text that God moved the heart of the king to, to order them to go back. God was behind this whole thing. So he did not take credit for the work that God had done. He saw everything that had happened to them along the way for exactly what it was. He saw everything as being provided by the grace of God. It was the grace of God that had gotten to this place. It wasn't anything they had done or had done. By his grace, they were able to leave Babylon. By his grace, able to stake their meager claim in Jerusalem. It was not their methods that had brought them this far. It was not Israel's, excuse me, Ezra's brilliant leadership skills, not the people's extraordinary abilities, but simply put, it was God's grace and his grace alone. Now, one point I do want to make, it's by God's grace, but he gives you gifts and talents that you can use. So we just can't sit there and go, God bless us. We have to be willing to say, God, here I am, use me. He gives you the gift. He'll give you what you need. I'm telling you, he'll give you what you need. Ask my wife, be nice to me, when she first met me. There's a lot of stories she could tell, but one thing she'll tell you is that I would sit in a corner in a break room and not talk to one person. Not one. After our first child was born, Brooke, she wanted to go back to church. I'm not going to tell you pervading what I said, but I said I'll never step foot in church ever again. And she said, oh, I wanted you to come back to church. But God honored that prayer. Maybe not the way she really expected to answer that prayer. Now I'm a pastor, and I talk so much. She's the one saying, come on, Tim, let's go. I was scared to death about talking in front of people. The first pastor I served under Wendell Gill, he had me do the announcements. And he would heckle me. He would sit right here. And I was trying my best, you know, to pronounce people's names the right way and all that. And I was, hey, brother, what's wrong about your next turn red? Uh, he picked on me somewhat, but I understood now what he was doing. Don't let that disturb you. Keep going. Don't, you know, don't let minor stuff throw you off. If God is leading you to do something, you're scared to death. I don't know how to do that. That's the best way to approach it. It draws you to your knees saying, God, how am I going to do this? You've heard me say this so many times, you're going to get sick of it. God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. 
A prayer of honest recognition doesn't go like this. So this is not a prayer of honest recognition. Thank you for giving me the wisdom to do this and that and the other thing, and thank you for blessing my work. That's not a prayer of honest recognition. A prayer of honest, in contrast, the prayer of honest recognition says, God, you did it. You did it all. You showed us grace. You have not forsaken us. You have extended mercy to us. You planned it. You set it up. You have accomplished it. It's all your work from beginning to end, and you graciously allowed us to be part of it. And lastly, we need to pray the prayer of humble petition. You see that in verses 10 and 15, 10 through 15. After looking back at the entire history of the people, after seeing all their sin and iniquity, after seeing there was nothing they could bring to the table to be worthy of God's love and grace, after seeing all of that and seeing the, all the grace that God had shown to them, seeing how he was the one who brought them to this place of blessing, he was the one who made them anything at all. After seeing all that, what does Ezra say? It doesn't really say anything. Now, our God, what shall we say after this? After all this has happened, all our sin, our iniquity, all the grace you've shown us, what can I possibly say? In verses 11 and 12, he goes back to the law and read the law back to God. He told God, I, I know we've broken your law, and here's a specific part that we broke. He quotes it, that they intermarried. He quotes that very law that God had given them before they even crossed over to the, across the Jordan into the promised land. How opposite is that from the, how we react most of the time? Most of the time, we've worked really hard to set up our defense. Well, God, I sin because I'm just weak. I lost my temper, God, but that's how you made me. I don't witness because I'm just too shy. I quit going to church because so-and-so hurt my feelings. I quit giving money because I don't like how it's being spent. That's how we like to react. How should we act? Simply, Lord, I've sinned against you. Your word tells me to be angry and sin not. When I lost my temper, I simply lashed out. Don't make any excuses. Or how about, Lord, I've sinned against you. Your word tells me not to not forget the extending of ourselves together. And I've been doing that. We're not justifying it. In the book of Hebrews, it says, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves as the habit of some. But even more, as you see the day approaching. What's that day? The second coming of Christ. So we need to pray, God, I'm sinning against you. You want me to meet with other believers. You want me to meet with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I haven't done that. So I'm not trying to justify it. How about this last one? Lord, I've sinned against you. Your word tells me to make disciples everywhere I go. And I have not been doing that. No excuses, no self-sophistication, and no defense. You know, if you go back and look at Great Commission, you probably know this already. It goes, go and make disciples. Would you look at that in the Greek? Because Greek has like six tenses, seven tenses of verbs. We only have three, past, present, and future. Greek has a lot more than that. I'm not going to give you a Greek lesson, but I want you to know when you're translating, sometimes it's hard in English to really render what the author is saying. So what he's saying is, when you go, so it's not like, okay, I'm, Tammy and I are going to go to Decatur and eat lunch uh, this afternoon. So we'll wait till we get to Decatur, and then we'll get ready to witness. No, it means as you are going, 
Not waiting till you get to wherever you're planning to go, but as you go, as you go through your walk, as you go through your day, keep your eyes open, keep your heart open as God brings people into your path. Because there are divine appointments. I firmly believe that. People just don't wonder in your life. Before I gave my life to Christ, I had three believers on my crew. Three of them. And they would constantly witness to me. Not, not standing up on the side of the gatehouse preaching to me, but just little things they said and did. I'll never forget this. One of them said, I told them, so I could say the books of the Old Testament in order by memory. He said, no, you can't. Yes, I can. They brought me dinner for that. I say that to remind you that VBS is so important. That's something I learned as a kid and it stuck with me. Something I learned. What does the Bible say? Teach your kids when they're young and when they're old, they will not depart from it. And when I became a, a believer, all the times my mom would take me to church, all those lessons that I heard as a kid, they all came back. I couldn't tell you where I could find them, but the knowledge was there. So we need to recite God's command, recognize his mercy, and submit to his lordship. God, I can't change the past. I leave that to your mercy. As for the present, I submit myself to change whatever you require me to change. Woo wee. Did you catch that? I submit myself to change whatever you require me to change. You are righteous. You continue to pour out your grace upon us, and we cannot stand before you apart from your grace. So I close with this. What is your prayer for this church? What is your prayer for your family? What is your prayer for yourself? Have you ever prayed a prayer of confession like this one? For yourself, your family, or your church? Perhaps it's time that we do. Maybe it's time that we reflect on all the iniquities and sin in our lives. Realize that even our righteousness have been as filthy rags and recognize the grace and mercy that God has shown to us. Maybe it's time we petition him to give us the strength to change. It's not easy changing, is it? We sure want other people to change, but it's hard for ourselves to change, isn't it? It's hard to change. Maybe our prayer should reflect something that we find in our hymnal. And if we want to read along, it's going to be page number 294. And quite appropriately, it's entitled, Have Their Own Way, Lord. I'm not going to sing it. I'd just like to read the words to you. And notice, there's an exclamation point behind this. There's strong feeling and emotion. An imperative, like a command. Have thy own way, Lord, have thy own way. Thou art the parter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I'm waiting, yielded and still. Have thy own way, Lord, have thy own way. Search me and try me, master today. Whiter than snow, Lord, wash me just now. 
as in thy presence, humbly I bow. Have their own way, Lord, have thine own way. Wounded and weary, help me, I pray. Power, all power, surely is thine. Touch me and heal me, Savior divine. Have thy own way, Lord, have thy own way. Hold over my being absolute sway. Fill with thy spirit till all shall see Christ only always living in me. That should be our prayer corporately. But it's not easy. It's not easy. But I will make this promise. We are honest before God and submit to him. He will make a change. And when he forgives you, as far as the east is from the west. There's no, the east and west never meet, that's the point. Let's turn it over to him. There is freedom. I, 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 I'm saying this to you and I, I have a hard time with it too. Because it goes against our rugged individualism. There's freedom in letting go. And saying, God, here it is. You've made me. You know me better than I know myself. You want the best for me. You love me. When I used to curse you and shake my fist in your face, dear God, you demonstrated it in a real and powerful way when I look at the cross of Christ. So much love. So much peace. He offers that to anyone who comes. Anyone. With a willing, grateful, obedient heart. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. And we look back to see how you moved and what you did through your people of long ago. God, we know that you're the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That you still desire to move in and through your people. You desire to use us to build your church. You are so patient. You are long-suffering that you don't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. Father, forgive us of our pride and our arrogance. Everything that I have in my life my wife, daughters, grandchildren, job, pastoring, everything good in my life has come from you and by your grace and your grace alone. Father, we don't deserve any of it. But you continue to pour out your mercy upon us. Father, I pray right now that you give people the strength and the courage to call out to you. To let things go in our lives as we submit to you and allow you to make the change within us. Continue to move and continue to speak to us, O oh God. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?